Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining our, our session today. So we look forward to being with you for the next hour. The, um, <clears throat> the reason we wanted to put the, the questions up there about do you know Bridges Concepts and are you from Ohio uh, is that John's study is actually about Ohio. But I think that uh, those of you that are from other states are going to find that all of this is relevant to you, too. So uh, let me uh, just kind of dive in here and um, say that, yes, we're moving into our third decade of doing this work. And the books that we use, you see uh, Ruby Payne's uh, book, A Framework for Understanding Poverty, uh, was came out in the mid-90s, uh, and that, uh, I think she's sold close to 2 million copies of that. And that was the beginning of, of this uh, movement. Uh, Bridges Out of Poverty was written by uh, Terry Ducey Smith and Ruby Payne and myself. That came out in 99. Uh, the book, uh, and we think of that, I do, as a book for the middle class, the people that uh, work in the organizations that have something to do with poverty and they get interested in how can we get better outcomes and so on. And so they attend workshops uh, on that topic and, and get that book. Uh, getting Ahead and Just Getting by World is a, a book that I wrote for people who are in poverty. And it's the same information, but they go into it much more deeply. Where a Bridges workshop is five and a half hours or six hours. Uh, in Getting Ahead, people meet 16 times and <clears throat> for two and a half hours. And they do a deep dive into the impact that poverty has on them and their communities. And uh, in the end, we end up having a common language between the middle class and people in poverty. The, the book, uh, Bridges to Sustainable Communities, is for systems uh, thinkers and leaders. And that's how we get to, uh, you might say, people that are in wealth and positions of power. And so we have a common language across all classes. So our work uh, over the, the last two decades is really turned into a movement, and uh, we're in 47 states and five countries, and we can, uh, as you see here, uh, we're able to build relationships. So much of this is based on relationships of respect across class and race lines and bringing people together from all sectors. It turns out that uh, employers can use this work and educators can use it and people in healthcare can use it and and they get great outcomes and begin to share that with other people. And uh, so that makes for pretty exciting learning communities that we develop. And, and we also, uh, this may be hard to believe, given the way we're so polarized in America these days, but we're actually able to bring people from the left and the right into this conversation. And in our communities, we, uh, we've interviewed them and asked, do you have people engaged from the left and right? And they say yes. And then we say, well, when you're trying to overcome the barriers that people in poverty face, do the narratives of the left and right ever come up? And they go, no. Uh, and I think that's um, that, that's because we, we have a, a way of getting at that, the way we look at the causes of poverty. So most of you on this call know what I'm talking about, and the others of you can learn more about it uh, when you have a chance. So we create a, a common language, and boy, that really makes things happen in a powerful way in a community because most of us uh, come at poverty with our own ideas or mental models of poverty, and we design programs based on what we're thinking. 
but if you can get people on the same page, uh, then you can uh, really uh, build collaboratives. So we have a, a set of thinking tools and constructs. Um, and when they're applied, we, we, we hope people will take ownership of the ideas uh, and we expect them to innovate. Uh, we don't come at this as a program. Uh, a program sort of comes in a box and, and everyone's expected to do the same thing. And we just know that every sector has to use this and every organization has to apply it as so it's relevant to them in their setting, in their community. And today we're going to be talking a lot about small towns and, and cities and it, it always has to be relevant. So I think we have a way of doing that. So when people apply uh, this work, then they innovate and brilliant things happen. And then when we share that and form learning communities, um, it feeds the growth. So the, it's very exciting work. And, and now uh, we're at the place where we want to be able to, to impact uh, policy. And uh, so that's where uh, John comes in. Uh, I met John through a fellow named Gene Krebs. Uh, <clears throat> Gene and I actually have uh, are writing a book together now that's called Bridges Across Every Divide. And I know that sounds really aspirational, and it is, but we also do have proof in our communities that uh, it's happening. And Gene has uh, introduced me to a lot of people, and happily uh, to John. And um, and. Through his introductions, uh, I got to know uh, the former speaker pro tem, Ron Amstutz and Tim Derrickson, and uh, they became attracted to Bridges' ideas too, as people do, and they formed a committee, uh, the, the Community and Family Advancement Committee, and they uh, put $11.5 million into starting uh, Bridges-style uh, programs in 21 counties, or expanding existing ones. And... And uh, it dawned on me that, um, so we, we know that we can reach across the aisle and do this kind of work, but, uh, and money was never the object. Uh, we did not ask for uh, that committee to put money into this, and we're, we're glad they did. But uh, it, it occurred to me that we're at the place now when we can begin to talk about policy, and we should, because uh, poverty is so complex that we're, we're good at uh, helping people make changes at the individual level and take responsibility, both people in poverty and people in middle class and wealth, you know, changing the way they think and doing things differently. And we're really good at having institutional change so that you get better outcomes in whatever discipline you're in. And now we have communities that have been so impacted by uh, bridges that the actual tone and culture has been impacted. And in the next step we must take is to have an impact on policy and maybe not federal right away, but it's time to work at the state level. And so I, that's what uh, today is about. Uh, incidentally, these are the, the counties that uh, got money. And those of you from Ohio might be interested in this and those from not, it doesn't matter. Uh, the, the idea here is that we can now uh, really think about uh, the principles under which we make policy and, and then develop the skills to do that. And, and John's study on uh, what's going on in Ohio is just so intriguing. Um, and I think that 
we want to align ourselves with John and people like him and also with Public Insight, which is something that John will tell you more about. We have a follow-up webinar coming up with Dan Quigg. And uh, so more and more ways for us to work with people that are very sophisticated in in data management and analysis. And we're just uh, raising our game. And so it's uh, saying that I just want to turn this over to John and say, John, it's been a pleasure to meet you. And I'm sure people uh, want to learn a lot from you. Well, Phil, thank you very much. And uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening in today. Um, The one takeaway from what uh, I'll be talking about is in the title of the first of two reports, Big City Problems in Ohio's Small Towns. Um, The second report, which I'll get into a little bit, uh, expands that first study to look at all of Ohio's 88 county seats. Um, uh, The takeaway simply is this, that in, in, especially for those who are interested in working on public policy as it relates to poverty uh, and improving opportunity for people across the country, Um, There is an awful lot that people share in common in small town America uh, with people in large cities. We tend to think of poverty or have for the last several decades, think of poverty as being an increasingly an urban problem and one that is intractable. Uh, That is simply not the case. The uh, 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 data uh, is... uh, that I'll be presenting is a snapshot, uh, most of it taken from the American Community Survey for the years 2010 through 14. Um, uh, Very importantly, I think for everybody on the call is that there are ways that you can create data for your own communities or your own states uh, along the same lines that it is readily accessible um, through uh, an organization and a service called Public Insight Dan Quigg, the CEO of that company, will be presenting a webinar in two weeks um, talking about how you all can uh, uh, create uh, data banks on your own communities and states and beyond, uh, similar to what I'll be presenting here. Um, I'm hopeful that the data is helpful to you for both planning purposes, for your bridges work in your own communities. Uh, Knowing something about the demographics of one's community is obviously important. Um, uh, Beyond that, though, for uh, advocacy purposes at the state and federal levels, um, it's helpful to have aggregate data and, again, to look at the common set of issues that people share um, between small towns and urban agendas and looking at the opportunity uh, for building bridges from that urban to rural uh, 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 gap. Uh, going forward, and rather than finding ourselves pitted one against the other, uh, a sort of Democrat-leaning urban areas, Republican-leaning rural areas, uh, looking at those things that people have in common and ways of, through the policy agenda, uh, addressing them. Uh, the first study, uh, uh, Big City Problems in Ohio Small Towns, uh, uh, looks at 47 hub towns in Ohio Uh, outside of the urban areas. They have a population of about 1.2 million, uh, and that is almost exactly 10% of the state's population. Of those uh, uh, 47 communities, uh, 34 are the seat of county government, Um, uh, 20 uh, have a a private or public uh, university in them, and there's reason for that. 
uh, and uh, the vast majority of them also have a hospital in them. Uh, the importance of the college and university is there for several reasons. Uh, uh, this work on, that I began before I retired at the Center for Community Solutions uh, came about just by driving around Ohio in the post-2008 period and seeing how uh, uh, bad things were starting to look uh, in a number of small towns. Um, it didn't hold true uh, for college towns. It, just the visual of those places was different. And as you'll see here in a moment, uh, the demographics are significantly different too, especially as it relates to some opportunity areas. Um, the uh, uh, types of towns are divided in this, the 47 that I looked at into heartland towns. Those are those that have neither a university uh, uh, or do, do not have a university. Public college towns, there are five of those, and private college towns, 15 of those. Um, Ohio is rich in the number of private colleges that it has scattered across the state. It's one of the things that we have, and uh, many of them are doing quite well, as you'll see. Um, the data for small towns were benchmarked against the state as a whole, against the uh, aggregate data for the Ohio's eight large cities. So Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus are the three C's, as we call them. And then Dayton, Toledo, Akron, uh, Canton, Youngstown are the others. Um, it was also benchmarked against 15 broadly representative suburbs uh, with a population of about 335,000. Um, start just diving into some of the data here. Uh, median annual income, uh, family income for uh, small hub towns and cities. Um, as you look at uh, median family income, you can see that uh, uh, the, the Heartland towns, um, uh, slightly above $45,000. Uh, quite low compared to the state as a whole, uh, uh, just a little bit over half of what you uh, would find in uh, suburban, in the suburban benchmark, um, and closer to uh, what median incomes look like in the eight big cities than they are to other types of communities in the state. College towns, the uh, middle two bars there, the blue and the whatever that other color is there, um, uh, both doing better than other small communities in the state. Another interesting thing, obviously, to, that you'll notice on this is that median uh, full-time earnings for women uh, across the board uh, remain less than those of men. Civilian labor force participation. Um, uh, how many people are out of the labor force? Uh, this is a, a matter of significant concern going forward. Uh, as you can see, um, compared with big cities and suburbs in the state as a whole, uh, small hub towns and cities uh, uh, have lower rates of people who are employed. While the unemployed numbers are not as high as what they are in the big cities, um, those not in the labor force are higher than big cities. And the reason for that has to do with civilian non-institutional population that has a disability. Disability rates in small towns are higher than what they are uh, in um, uh, big cities and other types of communities. Um, another uh, measure that I looked at was uh, uh, public and private health insurance. 
Um, and uh, uh, the important thing here uh, to note is that, uh, the, the, and this, by the way, these are data before the Medicaid expansion happened in Ohio. Uh, in small town Ohio, and especially Heartland towns, uh, about 40% in Heartland towns, 45% of the population are in Medicare or Medicaid. Um, those without health insurance, uh, highest, again, in those small towns that have neither a private nor a public college. Um, with the Medicaid expansion, I expect these numbers are probably up closer to 50%, uh, and that's quite significant. Uh, the, the slide from the book uh, that shows the data comparing the Heartland towns to big cities is not included in the slide presentation here. Uh, but Ohio's big cities, uh, both of those are under 40%, that is Medicare and Medicaid combined. Um, all of which suggests, looking at the data for college towns, which bring in lots of state and federal money, even the private ones, uh, uh, communities with hospitals in them, uh, and a large no amount of public insurance, that small communities rely to a very significant extent on public dollars uh, to, keep for, to keep their local economies going. I took a look at uh, uh, the roles of county government, hospitals, public schools, public universities, private uh, community colleges, and nonprofit universities and the kind of revenue and employment that they bring to small communities. Uh, this slide has an awful lot of data in it. Uh, uh, I think the big takeaway from this is that uh, hundreds of millions, tens of millions of dollars, sometimes many hundreds of millions of dollars, come into small communities in the form of federal dollars, either through, and state dollars, either through uh, the Medicaid and Medicare programs uh, or through support of primary, secondary, and higher education. Um, why is it important to include hospitals in this? Uh, many people don't know that the majority of uh, hospital revenue across the country uh, comes from public programs, that is Medicare, Medicaid, and military programs. So almost two-thirds of typical hospital revenue, oftentimes more, is already coming from public sources. The economic impact, again, uh, on communities, these are jobs that generally pay well. Uh, they're jobs that require higher education, uh, and as we know, the con you'll see more about this, the concentration of people with a higher education is skewed away from a number of small communities that do not have uh, colleges and universities or hospitals in them. Highest level of educational attainment, um, uh, here again, uh, if you look at uh, high school or equivalent is the highest level. The heartland towns, that is those without a uh, college in them, uh, almost 40%. Um, those with a bachelor's degree, under 15% for those communities. Um, if you look, uh, I want to go back to that for just a moment. If we were looking at these data uh, for uh, big cities, you would see that uh, the heartland towns Again, small towns without a college or university uh, trail uh, the proportion, proportion of college graduates in big cities by 10 points. That is big stage cities in the state as a whole, around 25%. Uh, Heartland towns, 
um, about 15%. Median poverty rates, uh, looking at family poverty here and for youth poverty, that is the bars on the two, on the far left and the far right. Um, you'll see the poverty rates for small hub towns and cities are higher than for the state as a whole, considerably more than the suburbs, still not as high as what it is in the big cities. If you look at youth poverty, um, uh, the same pattern holds. Um, but what we're seeing here is that almost a third of uh, children in small town Ohio are living at or below the poverty level. It's not as what you as big as what a uh, higher proportion is what you see in our eight large cities, um, uh, but it's up there a ways. Um, this is one of the most telling uh, things, and these data are available uh, uh, for uh, other states as well. This looks as, at uh, school lunch program eligibility, which is an excellent proxy for the uh, economic status for those not only in poverty, but somewhat above the poverty level. Um, reduced or free school lunches are available uh, from the federal government to those at 185% of poverty or below. So you have here both the poor and the near poor. Uh, small tub towns and cities in Ohio, uh, you can see uh, at about 60% taken together. Uh, considerably below what you see for uh, the, the uh, big cities, where over 90% of children in Ohio's public schools are in the school lunch program. Uh, however, if you uh, look at hub towns, that is those without a public college or university, the number is now 75%. So what that tells us is not only do we have an issue with children being in poverty, but we have a very significant number of children who are growing up in families that are between 100 and 200% of poverty. And the profile for income of families with children in school in small town Ohio looks very, very much like urban areas uh, dissimilar, almost completely dissimilar from what you see in suburbs or in most suburbs. Uh, teen birth rates, this one came as a surprise to me. Uh, teen birth rates in Ohio's heartland towns, that is those without a college or university, are higher than they are for the state of Ohio. Uh, they're higher than what they are in the inner cities. Uh, this probably has to do with the access in uh, big cities uh, uh, for teens. Uh, to uh, uh, contraception that is not as readily available in rural areas. Crime per thousand, um, violent crime not nearly as high, but crime per thousand for property crime in small towns uh, and cities uh, closer to uh, the big cities than what they are for the state as a whole. Um, taking a look at some similar data for Ohio's 88 county seats, uh, these data are divided uh, by the size of community. Um, uh, so we've got villages, those with under 5,000, uh, small towns, 5 to 15,000, large towns, 15 to 30, small cities, 30 to uh, 65,000, and then the eight large cities. Uh, we use the same benchmark communities for these uh, in the suburbs. Uh, in putting the data together. And you see similar patterns here, but what's interesting in looking at a larger number of small towns uh, is the difference that exists between the very small towns 
and the larger towns and cities. Um, uh, relative, pretty much consistently, uh, things look more like urban conditions in smaller towns than what they do in mid-sized towns and cities. Um, if you look at uh, population by age, one of the things that is going it could very well continue to drive uh, significant economic problems in smaller towns is the relatively higher proportion of uh, older adults. And you can see that dramatically in this slide here, where already nearly 20% of people in Ohio's villages in the county seats that are villages uh, are age 65 and older. And you see that steady decline. Large cities have the lowest proportion of young people in them. Um, uh, what that says about the future, as more and more people retire as a proportion of the population, is you're going to have an increasingly dependent population in small towns relative to the size of those communities. Ohio's county seats average median income. Uh, here again, uh, uh, the, um, excuse me, average median age, you can see the same sort of decline. Uh, what this says is that the age profile overall uh, is older in smaller towns. Average percent of the working age population with a disability. Here again, uh, if you look to the left, uh, villages and small towns uh, have uh, disability numbers that look like the large cities. Uh, those go down as you get to something around 30,000 and then they take off again. So the profile here with regard to dependence on disability income for lower income people tends to be higher in small towns looking more like the profile of big cities. Average median and household income on family income by community size. Um, uh, you can look here at household and family income. Households uh, include single individuals, which is why those numbers uh, look smaller. Uh, here again, you can see the performance of the very small towns looks more like the big cities and those that are somewhere in the middle, uh, but everybody's trailing the suburbs significantly. Ohio's county seats, civilian population, unemployed and not in the labor force. Uh, uh, here you can see that the large cities uh, are, uh, have uh, larger proportions of people who are unemployed, um, but the percentage of people outside the labor force is highest in the small towns and then steps down to the large cities. What that is a reflection of is the proportion of people receiving disability benefits. Uh, highest level of educational attainment. Um, this shows proportion of people with a bachelor's degree or higher, uh, and those with a high school uh, diploma uh, as the highest level. <clears throat> Here again, uh, villages uh, and small towns significantly uh, trailing the rest of the state in the proportion of people with a bachelor's degree or higher, uh, irrespective of whether or not there's a college in those places. Uh, what this says about the future in a knowledge-based economy uh, is not promising. Average median and childhood uh, poverty rates, uh, here again, higher numbers in the smaller, uh, small in the villages, uh, then it kind of dips down in the small towns and then escalates as you get up with poverty size. Uh, but in general, by comparison to the suburbs and the state as a whole, uh, our county seats, regardless of size, are trailing. Um, or have uh, significantly higher poverty levels. Medicare and Medicaid coverage, the same pattern as before. 
uh, very high proportions in villages and small towns, in fact, highest in the state, um, uh, higher reliance on uh, public insurance from those sources uh, than other communities. Um, I want to uh, talk about some policy options that were thrown out with, uh, for people to consider with these. Um, and these are the sorts of things that uh, I think that there's a huge opportunity going forward to build new coalitions between people in small communities uh, and those in big cities uh, uh, in doing advocacy work around issues of economic opportunity in general. Um, creating a specific economic development fund for Ohio's small hub towns uh, uh, seems to be in order. Most of this sort of investment on the part of the state of Ohio tends to flow to uh, larger uh, metropolitan areas, not only the cities, but also their suburbs. Um, there are hub towns outside of those metro areas that also need attention, especially, among other things, in the area of uh, broadband access. Uh, and connectivity to uh, uh, everything that's going on in the tech world. Um, a blue ribbon review of state and local revenue sharing programs in Ohio. For those who want to talk about that, I'd be more than happy to, but some of that is a little bit of an inside baseball thing for Ohioans. Um, establishing a youth employment uh, 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 and study program. Uh, Ohio does relatively little to support youth employment, either with summer jobs or the state as a whole. We may support about 10,000 jobs out of the state budget, but most of this work is done with local levy dollars, United Way dollars by local agencies. Um, we need to significantly ramp up work opportunities, not only to deal uh, uh, with uh, job skills for young people, uh, but also to do something to provide more productive activity. None of this study looks at the opioid situation or the crystal meth situation, which in Ohio is a whole separate webinar and an extremely uh, uh, significant and growing problem. So youth employment is something the state could invest in and uh, get a significant return on, we think. Increasing state support for teen pregnancy prevention, especially in rural areas. Uh, the fact that we have higher pregnancy rates, um, and in some small communities in Ohio, they're shocking. They're several times uh, what even the small town numbers look like. Uh, tells you something about access to con contraception uh, and just uh, some things that many of us would now consider to be common sense. Uh, develop and, and sustain a statewide civic capacity building initiative. Uh, developing something beyond just state policy and outside intervention, uh, I and some of my colleagues think is extremely important in that uh, civic capacity in a lot, of the, a lot of small town Ohio has declined as locally owned businesses have declined. Um, the uh, big box stores that uh, exist on the fringes of a lot of these communities have not only displaced commerce on Main Street, they've also uh, uh, displaced the cadre of local business leadership that played roles on the library board or the mental health board or the school board or the city council or leadership in the chamber of commerce or the Kiwanis, etc. 
that kind of civic leadership and the decline of the voluntary organizations in small towns has been written about by uh, scholars uh, uh, increasingly for the last 20 years, following Robert Putnam's book on bowling alone uh, from back in the 90s. Um, uh, developing civic capacity at the lo local level uh, needs to be an essential part of rejuvenating uh, the civic and community spirit and capacity of small towns. Uh, encouraging uh, uh, neighborhood-based so social services. Uh, this is in there because so much of what happens in people's lives doesn't even happen at this larger community level in small towns. It happens in a specific neighborhood. Uh, one example that I'm very fond of here in the state of Ohio is called the Conestoga Program, initiated by a Behavioral Health Board up in Erie and Huron counties, uh, which basically said, let's rather than try to spread our dollars out as far as we can, let's take a couple very significantly impacted neighborhoods, uh, starting in Port Clinton and then in Sandusky, um, and work with the police. Uh, work with uh, some uh, organizations outside of the usual uh, suspects in health and social services uh, to try to turn around uh, uh, the incidence uh, of uh, small crime, uh, uh, domestic violence, alcoholism, uh, drug use, uh, housing conditions in a very specific neighborhood and then try to grow it out from there. In other words, let's try to take things to scale in a specific neighborhood. They've had some uh, measurable success with that. Uh, and uh, uh, it's those kinds of programs and that focus on, on de developing capacity within neighborhoods um, that is uh, oftentimes neglected by policymakers we're looking for big kind of top-down solutions out here. Some other things uh, uh, for the state of Ohio, some of this might apply to other states uh, for you all. We have uh, just an incredible number of local governments in Ohio, uh, townships, uh, 1,500 or 1,300 townships, 600 some odd school boards, 900 cities and villages, uh, 88 counties, a number of special purpose districts, Mental health boards are their own political subdivisions. Developmental disability boards their own uh, subdivisions. There's some way that we can squeeze existing public resources out of all of that. Uh, we might have more available for state and local solutions to issues related to quality of life and incomes. Uh, so setting some kind of goal on that is a big one, uh, at least something I like to encourage. Um, some of these others on uh, changing the tax code, uh, infrastructure initiatives supporting economic development for consolidating local governments are things we can talk about. And I think I've pretty much uh, uh, run out of gas here and would prefer that we uh, have some Q&A and some comments back and forth with Phil. Uh, thank you all for listening. I hope that this is useful to you. I very much hope that for those of you who want to expand your capacity to use data, uh, both for your own planning and for your uh, public policy organizing, uh, that you'll uh, uh, come to the webinar in uh, two weeks that Dan Quigg will be doing, uh, and he can walk you through how to access Public Insights' enormous national databases to develop profiles for your own communities that might be useful in both of those endeavors. Thanks again, Phil, for letting me be a part of this. 
Yeah, thanks, John. I it's the second time I've heard it, and I've read your paper, and I think that uh, I kind of look at what you have here, so like a to do list. Uh, so I wanted to make a few comments before we turn it to questions and answers, and I'll go through this quickly because I'm sure people have questions for you. I think that um, I think one thing that those of us that are in Bridges communities need to make a commitment to is to say that we will stand with people in poverty. Uh, there's lots of competing uh, points of view when it comes to policies. And, you know, sometimes we're encouraged to support business. Sometimes we're encouraged to support the middle class. Sometimes we're, and I think that uh, there aren't enough spokespeople for those in poverty and those of us who are in bridges should, should stand with them. So our primary consideration would be to help people get out of poverty and create sustainable communities where everybody can live well. That's sort of our uh, mantra, if you want to see it that way. The uh, A study that was done by Beth Waller, a national study of getting ahead, identified these barriers that people in, in, in that study mentioned. And I'm just putting that out there as, uh, as something that we should be aware of. We are being told in getting ahead classes and groups about what the barriers are. And some of these align, I think, with what uh, John was talking about, and, and some don't. And it, it doesn't mean that we have to restrict ourselves to any of these or, or pick. You know, It's just you need to kind of take a, a broad view of what the barriers are that people face and, and the kind of things that we need to act on. Uh, and then there's some basic principles that go into this. Uh, I think if we define poverty as the extent to which people do without resources, and we name 11 of them, then it would make sense if we're consistent with that, that we should, that our, our, our theory about dealing with poverty would be to grow the resources. And you know, if you're familiar with Bridges, that we don't just look at individuals to do that, but we encourage institutions and communities to make that their goal too. Um, the other factor that's so prevalent uh, that happens in, people in poverty is living in a really unstable environment. And if that instability goes on and on, it's exhausting. It taxes you financially. Uh, it's a hassle all the time. What, you're, what you end up with, people that are exhausted and they end up living in a concrete mindset and have trouble getting to the abstract. There's lots of study out there now about what happens to people's uh, brains when they're being uh, stressed all the time. And so our thinking is that if you want to build resources, you're going to have to stabilize your environment. So those things would be uh, something to keep in mind uh, when we're talking about policies. Um, so we're uh, building on, you know, what the innovators have done. Uh, we have uh, data management tools. We can measure what's going on. Uh, People are doing studies of our work. And so uh, I think we're in a place where we can actually act on these things. There's, you know, like, as I said at the beginning, we're going into our third decade. And I think I want you to feel that we're ready for this. Uh, we have a lot of learning to do, but I think we're ready uh, to move into it. So um, with that, uh, I would like to open it up. Uh, to uh, questions uh, for John and, and myself. And um, we can, oops, I think I went the wrong way. Oh, there we are. 
Okay. Um, so uh, let's let's hear your questions and we'll do our best to answer them. Can someone please tell me how to access data management tools oh, data. on the AHA uh, site? I think that uh, our, our the best thing you can do is go to a Charity Tracker. Uh, but our data is managed by a group called Charity Tracker. So we're tracking what happen, happens with getting head graduates. Uh, that's that's uh, It's hard to evaluate bridges because it isn't a program. It's a set of ideas, but getting ahead is a program and working directly with people in poverty. So Charity Tracker lets us know these things. If a person's life has become more stable, if they've built their resources, the 11, and what what is the return on investment? So we're looking at increases in income, decreases in debt, increases in assets, and uh, and what's happening with their use of benefits. And we expect all of that to go down, of course, So or the, the benefit use. So those are the kind of things. There's a question here about the national implications for this research. Um, uh, there's similar work that's been done, especially since the election last year, on numerous states in the Midwest, and it's it's uh, all of a sudden uh, come to public light that, uh, hey, um, a small town America, especially in the middle part of the country, is really struggling economically. Um, uh, the uh, implications, among other things, is that it's going to be a long time of uh, turning around the economic prospects of small towns that have lost so much economic vitality uh, to the forces of the new economy. Um, there, some of this undoubtedly is due to uh, the loss of manufacturing jobs, whatever the cause of that might be. Um, an awful lot of small towns uh, historically and even today continue to rely on manufacturing uh, for a disproportionately large part of their employment base. Uh, for those of, of uh, working in the field, then identifying uh, uh, employment opportunities, economic opportunities for people with whom you're working uh, becomes more and more of a challenge. Uh, doubling the challenge is that uh, young people, and especially young people with college educations, uh, and this is true not just in Ohio, but across this entire part of the country, are moving away from small towns and seeking opportunities where the jobs are, which are in the small cities. And you can see those that in the data related to the age profiles of small towns versus large cities. Uh, there's almost a step-by-step -step decline going from villages uh, to the biggest cities as you go through each type of community. Um, that's a trend uh, that is troublesome now is probably going to get worse before it gets better uh, because the forces that are moving employment opportunities in one direction and not out into smaller towns. And let me uh, uh, say something that struck me when you were talking, John, about uh, Robert Putnam, social capital and so on. We're really aware of that in the Bridges work. And so in our Bridges communities, the one thing that we are building back in is the civic capacity. Uh, so many of our sectors are have as a common denominator the issues of poverty that they deal with. And so if you take Marion, Ohio, or you take Toledo, or you take Dayton, uh, many cities around Ohio that are using our work, what you're going to find is that people are coming together and by bringing all classes and all sectors together to do these things, we're actually uh, doing it in a very healthy way. This idea that we're all polarized just disappears in our communities. And if you take 
Toledo, for example, or Marion, Ohio. They both have, uh, have built, using bridges constructs, uh, what are called employer resource networks. And that is engaging the private sector, the for-profit groups, uh, by putting a nonprofit in the middle to connect their low-wage employees to, uh, to all the resources in the community that are governmental and nonprofit so that you're stabilizing the, employ the employee's life. And we also are doing small dollar loans so they don't go to payday lenders. And the next thing you see is the private sector is going, woo, we really like this. Uh, one of our problems is, is having people stay on the job. Turnover is a huge cost. And the next thing you know, your partnership includes banks and the for-profit sector. And you're actually having a big impact on the lives of the people that come from poverty into those jobs. So I, I think that we really have something to offer. And it's because the different sectors have been doing brilliant stuff like you see in, in those two towns and others. And what I think is important, though, in the process of that, Phil, and we have a couple more questions here we'll get to in just a sec, um, is that uh, uh, this involves engaging people outside the usual networks that work on poverty issues. Uh, it's extremely important for the business community to be engaged in, these, engaged in these things at the local level. And part of that involves informing them uh, uh, and helping them to understand uh, that, not just the data, but also the human stories that go with those data uh, in these communities. Um, uh, that kind of organizing at the local level can match up with work that's going on in big cities too, so that in adv doing advocacy work in state capitals in particular, uh, there's opportunities for new connections, new coalitions here uh, that in the past haven't existed. And very importantly, uh, bringing small business people from small communities into those conversations and the advocacy work uh, is a well, big opportunity in one guy's opinion. We have a question here about uh, small town America uh, government commissioners to change or educate on the need for change. Um, we do an awful lot. Phil, I don't Go know ahead. if maybe uh, that question was addressed. I'm to sure you. you're involved in that. Um, and while you're looking at that, uh, what sort of employment are young people leaving the towns for? An awful lot of these are tech jobs. An awful lot of the talented uh, folks from young towns leave to go to college and get four years and then just don't go back. That is, they're not necessarily leaving for a job. They're leaving for a higher education and then find opportunities and better pay in those places. Um, if you... Uh, uh, try to look at, okay, what might we do to try to turn that around? One of the things is uh, just uh, working with local institutions where there are new economy jobs. Healthcare is big. Primary and secondary education is big. Uh, if you have a community college, uh, that is an employer as well as an educator. And what sorts of partnerships are there to try to uh, create uh, and help with internships, uh, sort of uh, work-study programs with existing education institutions, including high schools, uh, so that uh, kids have an opportunity to find work in their own community. On the economic development side, investing in small entrepreneurs, um, uh, somebody who wants to uh, uh, open a plumbing business or a landscaping business or whatever, 
to put uh, skills that don't require a four-year degree but might require a two-year technical degree uh, or certificate, helping those people capitalize a business, building partnerships with local banks uh, or the banks that are in the community uh, to provide microloans to those people, working with state government to create a pool of money for grants or loans to small business startups in small towns, extremely important. And finally, broadband. Um, even people working out on farms, I am informed, need broadband connectivity in order to uh, uh, look at their best options for getting grain uh, and other produce to market uh, uh, and uh, to get the best price for them, uh, to just run their cell phones, sometimes to run the technology that they've got out on their big combines. So uh, broadband connectivity is increasingly important and advocacy along those lines in rural America uh, is very much in need right let, now. Let me uh, say that uh, when it comes to doing advocacy, I saw it in action when uh, Ron Amstutz and Tim Derrickson set up a committee. Uh, we had people come to the, uh, you know, from all over the state to testify and they brought with them all the best practices and the great things they're doing. And I, I think that there's, uh, there are 88 counties. Uh, by the last time I looked at the data, 60 of them in some way or another are using Bridges work. 30 of them are doing big time work and 20 of them are doing big, big time work. And I think that uh, we can take the best practices we have and we can uh, work with uh, any group that's out there that's willing to uh, hear about our ideas. Uh, and I think that uh, the idea of the book that I'm writing with Gene is to get our, uh, those of us that are in this poverty work to become much more sophisticated about how to do these things and how to have influence at the county level and at the state level. And I think um, we have a story to tell. And I think that we have we have a ways to go, of course, but we have a story to tell. And I think we can begin to really have an impact on the very things that we've been talking about here. So I think that there's a, there's, there's a question here, Phil, about transportation. And uh, uh, that really puts a finger right on a major problem uh, to which there is not an easy answer. But... Uh, uh, Oddly enough, depending again on what part of the country you're in, one of the opportunities that exists there is in the whole rails to trails movement and the number of people now who are getting on bicycles uh, and uh, moving around. Can you go 20 miles one way on a bicycle? Absolutely. People are doing it um, uh, from the suburbs into Cleveland every day. Uh, and it's a movement that's uh, gaining force around the country. Um, as there are more rail-to-trail uh, 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 work being done, uh, you might advocate for some of that as part of local transportation planning. Public transportation departments don't really ju haven't jumped on that bandwagon in our part of the country to the extent that they might. Uh, but it's one approach uh, that you can actually get at locally. Uh, and which is catching yeah, on in there's a, urban areas. Ohio, Columbus got the SMART grant. It was a huge, they're only one in the country to get it to work on uh, transportation issues. And uh, people at OSU got a hold of me and asked if I could uh, get some getting head graduates there to talk with them about 
what it was like in the Linden neighborhood, which is one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. And we have a bunch of getting ahead graduates from Linden, in Linden. And I have to say that uh, two people went there, maybe it was three getting ahead graduates, and uh, they were there for the roundtable discussion, and I wasn't there. But uh, what I heard afterwards was uh, after all the experts and everybody had sat around talking about these things and the input came from these women, at the end of the session, everyone was clustered around those women to get more details of what the issues are when you're talking about how to come to, to the barrier of the, what they call the last mile, you know. So you have a bus system that, that brings you within a mile of your home. Well, that's for a person in poverty, there's enough barriers. But if you have to take two buses and then walk for the last mile, all these things become pertinent when you're talking about innovative things like this smart approach that they had uh, for transportation in, in Columbus. So we had people at the table and uh, talking about it. And that's uh, one of the things we can do. We can bring people from all classes and all sectors uh, to the table to talk about this. So uh, I think we're running out of time, John. Uh, we'll take one more question for John and then we'll call it a day. Um, I see a long uh, discourse here on the chat box, Phil, about for, about Geauga County, and I'm not familiar with the two bridges programs that they're talking about. Mm. There, well, who who is from there. Pam? Could you jump on the mic? It's a bit easier than uh, trying to read the small print for me. <laughs> I'll read it to you. Geauga County has been facilitating two bridges programs. One is Bridges at Work. Uh, one is Bridges at Work. Uh, which provides a resource coordinator to yep. industries each week to assist workers in connecting employees to resources um, and reduce their barriers. The second is Bridges at Work, which focuses on unemployed and underemployed to minimize or eliminate yep. barriers to work so that workers can... Well, that's great stuff. I mean, that's what's happening around Ohio, so I'm glad to hear you're doing that. Uh, we want to be able to stand up a formal learning community. We thought we had a college that was going to act as the centerpiece for that. Uh, now we're looking for a new uh, house, home, for the Ohio Bridges learning community. So all of our best practices can go to one place, and we can be sharing these ideas uh, in a fluid and effective way. Uh, there's so many good practices out there. So thanks for sharing that, Pam. Yeah, you know, uh, Phil, Pam also mentions here that um, – uh, uh, that they're, they're working with the local credit union as well. And those relationships with credit unions, banks, any financial institution, if you get the leaders of those places involved, also community foundations, uh, they can be extremely important resources. All right. Thank you all. Thanks, John. See you, Phil.